Please join me in prayer. Prepare our hearts, O God, to receive your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, so that hearing we may also obey your will. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. This story that Rachel read just a moment ago is one I suspect you know well. Jesus and his disciples are walking near Caesarea Philippi when out of the blue he asks, who do people say that I am? And the disciples reply with what they've heard, a prophet, Elijah, John the Baptist. But you, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter, who honestly spends most of the gospel with his foot in his mouth, Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, it is impossible to overstate how significant this moment is. No one has ever put that together. At this point in the gospel, no one has acknowledged that this Jesus standing in front of them is also the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Unbelievably and uncharacteristically, Peter gets it right, and frankly, that gives me hope that some of us may too someday. And Jesus rewards him for that. You are Petros, he says, Peter the rock, a chip off the old block, and on this rock, I will build my church. Also worth noting, this is the first time in the Gospels that the word church is used. Unfortunately, we've been arguing about that one phrase for the last 2,000 years. Our Roman Catholic friends point to this passage to legitimize the papacy. They say that Peter's status and authority were given by Jesus himself to be passed down in a long line of apostolic succession to the popes. Protestants, on the other hand, believe that Peter's confession, you are the Christ, was the rock upon which Jesus would build a church and that it's overreach to leap from there to the Vatican. Now, I'm not looking to start an interreligious battle here, but the choice of words is interesting. Peter the rock, solid, rigid, unchanging, immovable. So I want to turn now to a story from Exodus chapter 2. At the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh is threatened by the number of Hebrew slaves in Egypt. He fears that there are so many of them that they will stage an uprising and he'll be out of power and out of a job. He needs those slaves to keep making bricks and keep his economic engine churning. So Pharaoh instructs the midwives who assist the Hebrew women giving birth that they are to kill any boy child who is born, but the girls can be allowed to live. And the midwives concoct some excuse about how the Hebrew women are so healthy that they can't get to them in time, so what you gonna do? Good trouble is what Congressman John Lewis called that. 
And here's the situation as chapter 2 opens. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Let me interject a sidebar here. We have every reason to believe that this sister is actually Miriam, the older sibling of Moses and Aaron. The entire 15th chapter of Exodus is a song that Miriam sings and teaches to the Israelites after God protects them while crossing the Red Sea. Moses gets credit for the Exodus, but Miriam is the one who makes sure that Moses grows to adulthood by protecting him when Pharaoh wants him dead. And here's how it happens. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him up out of the water. Now this is another familiar story. Moses in the bulrushes. Whether you grew up in church or not, it's so deeply a part of our culture that I expect you know it. Reading it again this week, I was struck by how many women collude to defy Pharaoh's orders and ensure that this baby has a future. Shifra and Puah and the Hebrew midwives for sure, but in this reading alone, there's Pharaoh's daughter, her attendants, her maid, Miriam, and Moses' own mother. All of those women out by the river creating good trouble to preserve a life. Those two stories have had me wondering this week if the river is not a better metaphor for the church than the rock. I went back to an article my friend Roger Nishioka wrote about what he calls the liquid church. He reminds us that liquids are fluid, they travel easily, they flow, spill, run out, splash, pour, leak, flood, spray, drip, seep, and ooze. They are not easily stopped. They don't have to hold their shape. They are not fixed in space or in time. 
The Greek philosopher Heraclitus says, no one ever steps in the same river twice because it's never the same river and, it's, and they're never the same person. Liquids are constantly in flux. Solids, in contrast, are atoms so tightly bound together that they resist interference and stress. That's why solids hold their shape. Time is irrelevant because solids tend to stay the same. They are hard, fixed, impermeable, unyielding. But I wonder if maybe we could stand to be a little more flexible, more fluid. On the college green at Trinity College Dublin is a statue of George Salmon. Salmon was a student at Trinity and then a mathematics lecturer. And finally in 1866, the Regis Professor of Divinity, a post he held until becoming the provost of Trinity College in 1888. Now, in the last decade of the 1800s, like most British and, and European universities, Trinity was in a fierce battle about whether or not women should be allowed to study at that level. Salmon himself was vehemently against the idea. And as provost, he said, women will be admitted to Trinity over my dead body. Coincidentally, in 1904, Marian Johnston became the first woman to register at Trinity. When she arrived in Dublin for her undergraduate entrance exam, she was informed that her examination would have to be delayed because George Salmon had died that very day and the faculty were attending his funeral. What if the church were more like a river than a rock. The North American church experienced its greatest growth in the 1950s and early 60s. We were nothing if not solid. The solid church is based on structure and permanence and marked by boundaries and norms and rules and decency and order. That's when Nuprov built this solid, impermeable building sometimes referred to as Fort God. In the solid church, success relies on the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and contributions. If those are increasing, then we must be nailing it. Solid churches exist to protect people or insulate them from the world or provide respite for an hour a week. But it's a different world now. Shifting demographics, COVID, rampant inflation and partisan bickering, all those things mean the church lives in a different world, including right here at New Providence. What does it mean to be the church for this community in 2023? which leads me to wonder, what if the church were more like a river than a rock? What if we were a liquid church rather than a solid church? Roger says the liquid church embraces ambiguity and mystery and wonder and awe. 
The liquid church is comfortable with paradox and irony, and it values ardor more than order. Even the liquid church is fluid and agile and responds to stresses, even welcoming them, because what else is life made up of? The liquid church doesn't try to protect people, Roger says. Instead, it embraces their pain and suffering and sadness and angst. For example, in 2015, the Presbyterian Church USA revised the Book of Order definition of marriage from one man and one woman to two people. Now, believe me, a good number of Presbyterians didn't like that at all, and they left. But plenty of others, gay and lesbian and trans and non-binary Christians and their allies and their families are saying the Presbyterian Church is welcoming. This is a safe place. This is a place where all people are accepted. What if the church were more like a river than a rock? Prior to the 1930s, there was no such thing as a female elder in the Presbyterian Church, but the world began to shift, and in 1953, Margaret Cummings was elected the first female elder at New Providence, followed in short order by women like Gray Prophet, Faye Kenst, Lois Murphy, and others. Today, our session and our Board of Deacons are equally split between men and women, and leadership is a fully shared ministry. That couldn't have happened in 1950. What if the church were more like a river than a rock? Six or eight years ago, we started an evening reading program at Lanier Elementary and then Rockford Elementary for students to work on their reading skills while their parents in another room were learning how to help them read. We called it the LIFT program. But attendance was never great because parents were working or the family didn't have transportation or a pandemic came up. And then this summer, our Matthew 25 team had the idea to send volunteers into schools themselves. Go where kids already are. And in the last couple of weeks, 33 adults from this congregation have been trained to assist in classrooms all over our community and provide reading enrichment for young learners. What if the church were more like a river than a rock? Here's what I'm saying. The solid church is one size fits all. Be like us or go somewhere else. But over here in the river, we can adapt and change. We don't have to assume that everyone thinks the same way or even should think the same way. There are always new ideas to try. This is the church reformed and always reforming. That's our thing, right? 
God isn't done with us yet. And we shouldn't give up on ourselves either. Amen?